Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the fifth Sunday after Trinity, July 4th, 2021, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.org. Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the Old Testament lesson appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from Ezekiel chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. can be found in your pew Bible on page 1287 if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name, Ezekiel chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke with me, or as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Don't kill the messenger. My guess is that a vast majority of you here today have heard some version of that phrase and understand its meaning fairly well. Don't attack the bearer of bad news simply because he bears bad news. I did some brief research this week on the origin of the phrase, or at least the origin of the sentiment, and the best I can tell, the idea goes all the way back to the Greek tragedy Antigone, written by Sophocles in around the year 440 B.C. Now, it used to be the case when I was in high school and we walked to school uphill in the snow both ways that Antigone was required reading for high school juniors and seniors. Uh, I've talked to people since and people ask me, what is this Antigone you're talking about? I've never even heard of it before. But it's an important play. You should read it if you haven't, and it might be the origin of this phrase, don't kill the messenger. Now, the line in Antigone is actually translated, no man delights in the bearer of bad news. That causes us to wonder, why would you want to kill the messenger? And as best as I can figure out as I meditated on this concept during the week, there are really only two reasons why someone would kill the bearer of bad news. First, they don't want to hear bad news. And second, they detect that the messenger himself delights in bearing the bad news. Now, in the first instance, we have a historical example, again, in the world of the ancient Greeks. Tigranes the Great was king of Armenian, or Armenia during the time of the end of the Roman Republic, right before the rise of the empire. Now, at that time, Armenia was part of the greatest threat to Rome's dominance of the Mediterranean 
and expansion eastward. During the early stages of conflict with Rome, a messenger gave notice of the arrival of an envoy from Rome containing, or containing the politician named Lucullus. And as you can imagine, an envoy from Rome was more or less going to demand that Tigranes and his cohorts and his people surrender to Rome. That's what political envoys did in ancient Rome. Tigranes was so displeased with the news that Lucullus was coming to visit that he had the messenger beheaded. Now, because of this, Tigranes sent, sat uninformed on his throne as war developed all around him because no one from that point on dared to deliver any bad news. And Tigranes ultimately surrendered to General Pompey, who was one of the colleagues of Julius Caesar. So there's your history lesson for the day. The second instance why anyone would kill the messenger comes not only from historical, but also biblical example. And all we have to do is turn to King David to see what I'm talking about. After the death of King Saul, at the very beginning of 2 Samuel, a messenger delivered to David the news that Saul and Jonathan had died in battle and brought David Saul's crown and armlet to anoint him as king. As David asked for more details, it turns out that this man had killed Saul after Saul had attempted to take his own life. And discerning that this man was looking for his own advantage in David's kingdom, David became incensed and ordered the man to be executed, saying to him and to his people, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? In this case, the messenger was killed because he delighted in bearing the bad news. Now the question before us at the moment is what do either of these two anecdotes have to do with our Old Testament lesson from Ezekiel 2 this morning? Well, I, as your pastor and as a preacher, am about to be the bearer of bad news. And there's nothing that can get a pastor into more trouble than delivering bad news. The trouble starts for pastors and churches either when you, as the congregation, don't want to hear the bad news, or when I, as the preacher, delight in sadistically preaching the law. But as we return our attention to Ezekiel 2 this morning, we'll see what the bad news is, why it must be delivered, and what happens when either of us fail in these ways we've described. So first, from Ezekiel, or rather from God, the bad news. You are a miserable sinner. Now this is an interesting proclamation. On the one hand, you should probably know this, especially if you've been listening to my preaching for any amount of time. In fact, for any faithful pastor, this is a large part of the message that we've been entrusted by God to preach. I was talking to a pastor friend a few weeks ago at annual conference who told me that he had a member of his church come to him and tell him that he didn't feel like he was a miserable sinner. What he said was, Pastor, 
I think I'm pretty good at sinning. So, take that to heart. That's more or less the problem, isn't it? We're all really, really good at sinning, and this has been the case for every human all the way back to the Garden of Eden. To illustrate this for us this morning, Ezekiel, in his message from the Lord, employs four terms to drive home this point. The first term is rebellious. Now, this term is defined in one lexicon I have access to as to be bold and audacious in acts of rebellion or disobedience. That's what the word rebellious here means in Ezekiel. This is the fundamental nature of our sin. We try to usurp God's place of authority in the universe by directly disobeying Him and declaring to Him in our sin that we know better than He does. Every sinner is a rebel. The second word Ezekiel uses is transgressed. Now, the easiest way to understand the definition of transgression in this context is to see it as the regular act of a rebel. So, you transgress because you're a rebel, and you're a rebel because you transgress. This is how it works. A transgression is someone who is committing a sin in opposition to God's will and law. Okay? Rebel, transgression. And the final two are a matched pair. Impudent and stubborn. At least those are the words the English Standard Version that I use. And I love the term impudent. It is as vibrant as a term to describe our sinful nature as you're going to arrive at. The term impudent means severe. And what it is, is an evaluative term that talks about the degree of our sinfulness. In, in saying that we are impudent, it means that we are severe sinners. Stubborn, I think everyone knows, but what's really interesting is the, the Hebrew word Ezekiel uses is actually the term for firm or hard. So if you've ever heard of someone talked about as a brickhead or as a blockhead or, or describing someone as like a mule, that's kind of the picture of stubborn, and it's so much better to study it that way, again, because ancient languages work in word pictures. So together, these two terms communicate that the idea, uh, communicate the idea that the Israelites are committed to their sinfulness. No matter what, they are not changing their ways. And so it is with you in your sin and I in my sin. All of this put together paints a picture of bad news. We, corporately, as humans, are totally sold out to the act of sinning. We're totally committed sinners. We don't want God to be in control. We don't want God to tell us what to do. At our best, which isn't great, all we want God for is to bail us out when we get into trouble 
and once he fixes things, to go back to leaving us alone. At our worst, which is particularly grotesque, we want God written out of the story of our lives altogether. We have no use for him. And it is my job, both as your pastor and as a preacher of God's word, to regularly be telling you about this bad news. And that's where the trouble starts. One, because no matter what, and I will give you all credit here, okay, I'll give you credit, although in God's eyes, credit is nothing whatsoever, but I'll give you credit. You're all here voluntarily in the middle of summer in a giant room that has no air conditioning to hear the Word of God. Good job. But here's the deal. You don't want to hear about your sin. You don't like to hear about your sinfulness because whether you admit it or not right now, you think you're better than you actually are. I want you to pause, let that sink in a little bit, and I'm going to give you evidence that is going to condemn each and every one of us here. Okay? We've all just come through 16 or so months of pandemic, of civil unrest, of voluntary or involuntary isolation. And these last 16 months haven't really been banner for the human race or for Americans in particular. At some point in time, you have likely heard and agreed with or said this phrase, we're better than this. Sound familiar? Guilty as charged? All right, we're all on the same page then. Now, I've heard this sentiment here at Faith, and I've heard it multiple times from my pastor friends around the states as well, and it goes something like this. Pastor, I wish you'd just give me something to do, something for me to work on this week to improve my life, and I'll take care of the rest. I love the way you preach, and I love hearing about Jesus and forgiveness and all of that, but what I really want is you to give me something to do. Now, why is this sentiment so popular, at least among American Christians? First, because we don't think the depth of our sin is really that bad, and this leads to second, we think in our own efforts and by our own power, we can fix whatever problem exists in our life. Now, those two issues are the two sides of the same coin. And more often than not, we will end up treating our sin as a mistake instead of a character defect. More often than not, we will treat our sin as if it's a symptom of the common cold rather than a terminal disease. But most strikingly, and more often than not, we treat our sin as something we will naturally heal from and overcome if given enough time, rather than as death itself. But here's the word of God to Adam at the very beginning. 
if you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the literal translation is, dying you shall die. And what that means is not only the consequence of your sin is death, sin itself is death. But treating our sin as if it's fixable allows us to keep our pride and most importantly, our autonomy intact. And that goes back to the entire problem. Autonomy for any human at any time is merely an illusion. We can stomp our feet, we can scream at the top of our lungs, we can deceive ourselves that we're in control of our lives. But we're not. God is in control, and God is definitively in control. Which means that our desire to be in control is an act of rebellion in and of itself. We've placed ourselves in opposition to God. We've poisoned ourselves with our sin. We've killed ourselves and left ourselves in this helpless state. And God can and will execute His death sentence against all treasonous rebels. And we don't want to hear about it. But I still have to tell you about it. And that, too, can be a problem. Because there is a very real danger that I might like the bad news. Now, why might this be the case? Generally, it works itself out in the same way what we just talked about. In preaching the law against you miserable sinners, I might end up trying to make myself look better than I really am. After all, the most powerful drug there is in deceiving ourselves about sin is if we can convince ourselves that we're better than someone else. If I can deceive myself into thinking, well, sure, I'm a sinner, but I'm not as bad as this person, then what it is is that I've really committed the same thing all over again. I have deceived myself into thinking my sin isn't really a problem. It's something that can be overcome by someone else's greater sinfulness. That's still a problem. But there is a very real danger for all of us in enjoying the bad news. And that's when we think the law is the end of God's message to us, when we think the law is the central word of God's communication. And in doing that, we might kill when God has entrusted us to deliver life. So what does this look like? This happens most frequently when the preacher of the law or the bringer of the law, and it's not just preachers, it's parents, it's friends, it's anyone who evaluates anyone else in their sin is a preacher of the law. And what happens is as we deliver the law, we think moral improvement is the goal. We think it's our job to turn our own or someone else's life around. But what's the problem with that? 
puts us in exactly the same place for a third time, underestimating the depth and the effect of sin. Sin is terminal. And if you can't coax obedience and moral improvement out of yourself, I sure am not going to be able to do it as your pastor. Now, don't get me wrong. Obedience is both good and necessary. Obedience is the target of God's law. When God says, don't kill, he literally and factually doesn't want you to kill. So it is with the other nine commandments too. But what our problem is with is God's standard. Not merely outward, measurable obedience, not merely improvement, but perfection. And so this begs the question, if you can't improve your situation out of your sinfulness, and I can't improve my sinful, nation, uh, sinful situation out of my sinfulness, then why do I bother to preach the law at all? If the law isn't God's message to us, or at least his central message, why is it necessary? And here's where it all comes together for Ezekiel and where it all comes together for us. In preaching the law, God always has another word. There's always a promise to be proclaimed. There's always good news that follows the bad news. And we see it here in Ezekiel 2, even in this passage of what seems like doom and gloom. Four simple words introduce us to the promise and the effect of the gospel. And whether they hear, that's it. That's God's lifeline to you in Ezekiel 2 of the gospel. And whether they hear. And here's how this works. Why do I, as your pastor, preach the law? Why do I every week tell you about the bad news? Why do I regularly call you a miserable sinner and require that during the worship service from you and from your lips? Because you might hear. And in hearing, you might repent. And in repenting, I get the great and glorious job of proclaiming the gospel to you. You are a miserable sinner, but you are forgiven. Full stop. You are forgiven because Christ has died in your place. You are forgiven because Christ's blood washes away all your sins. You are forgiven because Christ rose from the dead and so defeated sin, death, and the devil for you. And so, please, for my sake and for your sake, don't kill the messenger. Because if the messenger comes with the word of God, he will never ever stop with the bad news. He has good news. I have good news. And this good news is for you. Because at every place in your life where you have failed, 
At every place in your life where you have rebelled against God with treasonous, repulsive sin, Christ has succeeded. Christ has redeemed you. Christ has atoned for your sin and he has saved you. This truly is good news. It is worth waiting for and it is worth proclaiming. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.